Earlier this year, I spoke to renowned theoretical physicist Lawrence Krauss about his book called The Physics of Climate Change. We sat down in beautiful Oregon and spoke about wide-ranging topics that I'm sure you're going to enjoy. What inspired you to write The Physics of Climate Change? Well, first of all, I, I have to say part of it was the pandemic. Okay. I was, I was, uh, uh, I normally travel and lecture and, and go back and forth places. And here I was not, you know, at home, not doing anything. And I right. thought, uh, what can I do? And I started, and, and really what had motivated me is I'd taken a group um, earlier in January uh, um, to, uh, to the Mekong Delta yeah. for many reasons. And I, and I began to research climate change in the context of that. And that right. really grew on me. And speaking to that group, uh, their reactions really indicated to me that people really wanted to understand what it was about, or some people did. Right. But the importance of understanding and how could one frame it in a way that was accessible. Because it seemed to me it's become such a political issue. But basically, if you can't discuss the science in some some easy and accessible way, right. then how can you expect to have any rational public debate? Exactly. And the idea really grew on me. And uh, and uh, uh, I wrote with a frenzy. And it was fascinating for me to I like to learn new things in the context. But it was it was trying to understand sort of like I did. And the reason the title is The Physics of Climate Change is in some sense harkens back to my book 25 years ago, The Physics of Star Trek, where I tried to take a subject that was, you know, sort of in some ways really seemed inaccessible and, and make it accessible right. and, and latch on to something that was in that case a cultural symbol. In this case, climate change is a vital, vital question. But what I wanted to do was write a book that wasn't about policy. Okay. Uh, I wanted to write a book that hopefully would reach people who were skeptical, who, who didn't buy, were worried about, about policies that might infringe on their pocketbooks or something else. And... And so uh, I didn't want to write a book that advocated policy because that would turn those people's off, people off. And, exactly. And uh, I was very, very happy after I finished it to, uh, and I wrote it, I have to say, in a normal book takes me at least a year to write. And, 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 and this would have taken me at least 10 months. I wrote it in 10 weeks because I had <laughs> no, I, basically morning, noon, and night. Uh, uh, and it was kind of a new experience for me. I'd never done anything like that. I also wrote it before I'd had any arrangement with a publisher, which is also the first time I'd ever done that with any of my books. But it was a subject that clearly had captured me. Exactly. And I was very happy afterwards when I had colleagues who were, or friends who were somewhat skeptical, who weren't scientists, right. who read it and said, this is the book I've been looking for. And on that topic, how would you describe the physics of climate change to a layman? <laughs> well, that's what the book's about. But uh, I guess the point is that what uh, the key thing I wanted to demonstrate was that you hear all this stuff about complicated computer models, supercomputer calculations right. of climate, right. and that's true. At, you know, to 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 do refined estimates of what's going to uh, what might happen in some location or how precipitation could change in 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 the northern hemisphere versus right. the southern hemisphere and specifics of 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 melting of 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 glaciers, but. The fundamental physics, as I like to say in the book, is it isn't rocket science. Right. <laughs> it's, it's based on re, really basic physics that is understandable. The, uh, obviously, one hears the, the the term the greenhouse effect, but uh, and uh, and it's cert that's a key notion, but it's often again misplaced. But uh, so what I wanted to do was describe, uh, uh, and what I can do is describe the fact that it's just it. it 
although there are differences, it's like thinking what happens when you sleep under a blanket on, right. on a bed, okay? Right. Your body's radiating heat and, and it would radiate out, okay? The blanket, in some sense, stops it from radiating out. And that's what people often think of as greenhouse effects. But it's, more, it's even more subtle than that. The point is that by the blanket basically absorbing your heat and radiating it back to you, okay. the surface of the blanket is cooler than the surface of your body. Right. So the surface of the blanket is radiating, as all things are, but at a lower temperature, and therefore less radiation is going into the room. Oh. That's, that's the key of the, of the greenhouse effect that I think most people don't realize. Um, it's really not what's happening at the surface of the Earth. It's the, as, as the atmosphere absorbs more infrared radiation from the Earth's surface, right. let, let me step back. Okay. The sun heats the Earth. Okay. Okay? It, 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 it provi provides energy that it pinches on the Earth each day, and the Earth reflects some of it, okay? and it absorbs some of it, and it re-radiates some of it. Okay. Now, if it didn't radiate into space the same amount of radiation that came in from the sun, then the Earth would continually heat up. Right. So in equilibrium, it's got to radiate into space the same amount of energy that, 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 that comes in from the sun. Right. And where does it radiate? It radiates from the, it, well, some of it, you know, gets reflected from the surface of the earth and goes through the atmosphere. But the, but the, the radiation coming from the earth is radiated from the surface of the atmosphere, the edge of space, because that's where the radiation can escape into space. Okay. And if we absorb more radiation in the atmosphere, then the point where the Earth radiates into space is at a higher elevation because, because the atmosphere isn't transparent until you're higher up because radiation is being absorbed. And higher up, the atmosphere is cooler. So effectively, the Earth is radiating into space from a cooler place, which means it's radiating less energy, which means it's heating up because it's getting in. And, and what happens is it heats up enough until eventually you get an equilibrium again. That's something called radiative forcing, and that's the sort of what I've given here is a basic explanation of that. But that's the heart of what's happening, of the heart of the reason that carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are 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 important, even for with very small percentage in the atmosphere, is they change the point in on, on the, in the atmosphere in the at uh, the upper level of the atmosphere where the Earth radiates. That's basically the heart of it. And the interesting thing is that the science of it is quite fascinating. The history of it is quite fascinating, as I discussed there. Mm. And if we were to take actions to stop climate change, mm -hmm. do you think it's it's too far gone, or do you think we could still? It's never too far gone to take action. I mean, uh, that's the point. Look, there are things that are going to happen, as I discussed in the book, like it or not. Given the, 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 the heat energy that's already been absorbed due to the fact that we've in, increased the carbon dioxide abundance in our atmosphere by 30% since, uh, since 1900, more or less. 30%? Um, wow. 30%. Yeah, well, the, 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 yeah, and, well actually, since um, the measurements first started to be taken about 1960 okay. by Ralph Keeling, uh, when the... Uh, Carbon dioxide abundance was at something like 315 parts per million. That's in 1960. It's already up to 420. Wow! It's 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 That's changing a on a human on a short time scale in 60 years by that by that incredible amount. That's a lot. And and that's a lot. And the question is, well, when you say it's a lot, and one of the things I try and do in the book is, what is it? Is it a lot? What is what does what it mean to have changed? You know, exactly. you know, it's still it's still less than one part in 10,000 of the atmosphere. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and and so. Uh, uh, or four parts in ten thousand, I should say, in the atmosphere. But um, uh, uh, so, so the point is that there are things we've already done, and 
and that they're not model dependent. And that's the other thing that's important. Really what I want to show is, yeah, the fine details are model dependent. It's like the fine details of of designing a car, right, a, right. A, a fancy sports car. You have to really work and do literally fancy computer models. Exactly. But how an internal combustion engine works, you don't need fancy computer models exactly. to understand. Exactly. And so anyway, for example, the, the sea levels are rising. And much of the conventional wisdom is that sea levels are rising because somehow glaciers are melting and what. But in fact, a fair fraction, at least half of the reason sea levels rising, is a simple fact of physics. When you heat water up, it expands. Right. And the oceans have stored a lot of energy that's being, uh, that's heat energy, heat energy that's being circulated around the oceans. And just from the heat we've already dumped in, even if we stopped using fossil fuels and brought the level down today to where it was in 1960, even if we stop that, you're talking by the year 2100 and about a quarter of a meter, 25 centimeters of sea level rise. That may not seem like a lot. That's a lot. But it is a lot, as I'll talk about, as yeah. I talk about near the end of the yeah. book, in places around the world, that alone is significant. And so that's going to happen. Right. And so, first of all, when we think about action, the worst thing we can do is put our heads in the sand and say, I don't want to think about the problem. Right. Because we should at least prepare for that Okay, and it's, it, that's not going to end civilization, but it's going to produce known effects. And we should be prepared for that in the first world countries where we can imagine what's the effect of, a, and, and in fact, if you plug in all the other effects that are likely by, the, by 2100, we're probably going to have one meter sea level rise. Wow. That's more or less a conservative number, and it's more or less independent of whatever we do. Okay. So if you were president of the world and you would have, <laughs> and you would have to pass pass executive orders to stop this, what would be? Well, I, the point is, that, well, there's a lot we can't stop, but we can try and ameliorate. We can try and look at low level, low lying regions and ask what can we do to protect them. That's not unheard of. Think of Holland. Much of the country is already under sea level. It is, but yeah. but they manage to build incredible systems that protect that country. There'll be. As I discussed in the book, mo where I was, most of South Vietnam, almost all of South Vietnam will be below sea level by 2100. In fact, by 2050, probably. And all of that, that. How would you stop that? Well, you, you know, there you'd have to imagine incredible engineering feats with sluices and, and gates. And, right. um, and, and you also have to imagine the things that are exacerbating that as well, because that whole region depends on the Mekong Delta basically flooding the rice fields at, at various times of the year. And the Mekong Delta, as I said at the very beginning of the book, what amazed me, if you go down the Mekong River, you see these barges dredging sand everywhere. The, 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 uh, sea level, the river level has, uh, floor, I'm sorry, I should say, has dropped by over a meter due to sea level, due to dredging for sand, for concrete, and wow. things like that. So you've got to say, how can we, first of all, stop making the problem worse? And then you'd have to imagine huge, huge construction projects. You also might have to imagine saying, well, maybe we can't do that. How can we adjust our economy? How can we consider relocating people? Because right. there'll be, and that's another problem. Unfortunately, if you look at the predictions differentially of what's, uh, what are likely around the globe, you find that the effects are probably exacerbated around the, more or less around the equator, okay, or near the near equator, but near regions which are unfortunately both impoverished Many countries are impoverished and largely agricultural, and that's going to have a huge impact, impact on their agriculture. And, and, and so today there's a big issue of immigration in this country and right. other countries. Right. But we have to prepare for the fact that there are going to be that there, there are already 
climate migrants, but there are likely to be many more climate migrants, people who literally their livelihood depends on agriculture, but the climate has changed right. or the conditions have changed the way that they can't function anymore and they're going to move. Right. And so if we're not prepared for that in advance, we're going to have an influx of uh, uh, not just tens of thousands or right. millions, but right. the, 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 if you look at it, there's something like 120 million people on earth who will be who live in regions that are low-lying enough to be affected by the turn of the century. Right. But the other thing is, clearly... But why are the, people the, so skeptical? Like, that's my... That's what I, my I, I, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, people... Like I everything, think, everything you just said makes complete sense to me. But. I think people are skeptical, first of all, because they don't want to... People are worried about their livelihoods, okay? Right. Some people are worried about the lives in the future, but some right. people worry that if we enact changes that'll that'll impact on this that'll affect the standard of living right. you know and, and you know what people say oh you can't you know use fossil fuels you can't drive your cars and that's that's right. just not the case what we need to realize is that and and I think this is why I try and end the book in some sense on, a, on not necessarily an optimistic note mm -hmm. but it, it's like it's like the Dickens story of of uh, of, of uh, the Christmas Carol there's yeah. a future as it might be. Right. And if we picture the future as might be, we can change the future now by do by taking action. And there are lots of and technology is a remarkable thing. And and so the the problem really isn't a technological one, it's a political one. There are lots of things we can do to try and address uh, address the problem, including investing in technologies that reduce our, our dependence on fossil fuels in a way that doesn't hurt the 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 standard of living actually Helps, helps the standard of right. living, and I think that. But I think a lot of the skepticism is unfortunately due to short-term uh, greed. Greed, really. Basically, <laughs> that. Um, and and you know the funny thing is, many fossil fuel companies, as the U, just like the U. If you look at the groups that are already looking at the future and seeing what it's going what it's going to be, those include fossil fuel companies. They see the writing on the wall. Right. As does the U.S. military, by the way. They're one of the first organizations. That, ha that created a study group on climate change was the military. Why? Because it's it, their job not to worry about what the politicians say or what is politically correct, right. but what are the real threats in the 21st century. And, and in some sense, climate change is a national security threat. I think there's been a very effective um, public relations campaign against uh, the notion of, of climate change for two reasons. One... Well, it's, one is the, is the, the greed aspect, but right. the other is that... People don't want to do something now for well, something in the future. Well, that, yeah. that's always the case. It's very hard to imagine something, right. in, you know, your grandchildren. Right. Right. In fact, by talking about grandchildren may be one of the few ways we could try and reach people. Right. But but it's not a problem like nuclear weapons where the world will end today, okay? And, and let, me, urgent, let yeah. me state again, I'm not saying the world's going to end. There's going to be dramatic changes that we're going to have to address. Right. I think also the problem is a, a skepticism... There's, there is, unfortunately, a growing skepticism about various kinds of science. You're seeing it in the pandemic. Right. People who say, oh, I don't trust the scientists. Yeah. But, but somehow, what people were able to do is focus on this model aspect. And it is absolutely true that the detailed climate models are incredibly complex, and some of the predictions are, have, have large uncertainties. And one of the biggest misunderstandings in the public today is the notion of uncertainty in science. Like, uncertainty is a bad thing. In fact, thing. it's a good thing. Yeah, a good thing. Science is the only area of human 
intellectual activity where we can quantify our uncertainties. We can say, here's our prediction, but there are these error bars. Right. And, and that's incredibly important. It's central it, in all the physics I do, from cosmology to particle physics. It's the, it, being able to quantify our uncertainty is incredibly important. But, but the fact that models have uncertainties and the fact that they're complicated is something that people can harp on. What you get is people saying, I disagree with this model because they haven't put in this factor. You know, it's a complicated computer. Well, we'll even think to recently, like with the, the models of the coronavirus. Yeah. They said these models said that certain things are going to happen. At the end, they realized they weren't going to happen. So that kind of adds to the Well, it does in a sense. But what it does is people, sometimes the, uh, the scientists are, are sometimes to blame for this. If you overstate what your predictions are without your uncertainties, then then you're, then it comes around and bites you in the butt. Right. And and one of the biggest things about the pandemic uh, and the coronavirus is that is that people don't realize that epidemiology is an incredibly complex and uncertain field because the statistics are so bad. You can't predict what a virus is going to do. There's no way during a pandemic you can make accurate predictions on what's what? going to happen when you don't know many features. And so the scientists do the best they can. Right. But to assume, it, it, partly I say, I was just on a program about Star Trek the other day, and I was saying one of the one of the things that Star Trek did that hurt us is gave the illusion that when there's this technical problem that, you know, Geordi or someone else can, or, or Scotty can, <laughs> can fix it in an hour. Right. You know, that technologically we'll go and do it. And the point is that's not the way it works in the real world. It takes a long time. And if you, and, 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 Garbage in, garbage out. If you don't have the data, if you don't have the the, the the experiments that give you precise understanding of many features in the case of the pandemic, like transmission right. and and the the dynamics of how it's of of, of what the virus does, you can't possibly um, make really accurate predictions. What you can do is say if this, then that, right. and that's what I think the accurate epidemiologists were, were trying to do. But people, of course, latched on to either and the worst case on, predictions or right. the best case predictions. It's, it's, um, it, it reminds me of kind of like when I work with clients. I'm a software engineer. I've worked with uh, Google and Cisco yeah, yeah. and the whole deal. And when you're trying to explain to a client or a stakeholder that they can't do something technologically speaking because you need to get other assets, yeah, yeah. they don't understand that. It's kind of it's all like a difficult job or to explain complexity well, sometimes. People want, I think the hardest thing is when people want the results. It's really hard to understand. Um, you know, some people want in the pandemic, want a result would be no death. Some right. people want it a lot so that they would hurt politicians or, <laughs> right. or, or so that people would be shocked. And I think it's the same. People obviously look at the climate, climate change is such a slow process. It's kind of like evolution. There, there are all these, you know, I, for a long time, I, I spend a lot of my time trying to convince schools not to, you know, not to stop teaching evolution, which is the base of modern biology. But evolution involves change I thought, I over... I you were a promoter of uh, creationism. Yeah, oh yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, but one of the problems with that is that, is that though evolutionary processes happen over long time periods that are so long that when people look around, then they'd say to me, I don't see species changing today. And it's a slow process. It's a slow process. And climate change is a, is a slow process. Uh, it's not that slow. I mean, the, what amazed me in the writing of the book, and, and I already knew some of it, is how dramatic various changes have happened. And that's the other important thing. People suggest that the problem with climate change is its predictions of the future. In fact, it's happening now, and you can measure it now. It's not some 
model-dependent theoretical prediction of scientists that you may not trust. Right. You can measure things, certain things like the acidification of the ocean, which is direct consequence of the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Uh, so, you know, there are many, many changes you can... In fact, one of the in more interesting things that I discuss in the book, which is remarkable, is there's a difference between weather and climate. Okay. Okay? And, you know, weather, weather is what's going to happen in a lo location, you know, today or tomorrow, and climate is sort of... Uh, global conditions that change over time that can be right. measured and 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 what's really interesting is for the first time uh, there a nature article came out suggesting that in weather measurements namely in you know on, around the world on a given day you can actually see the effect of climate change for the first time statistically it's really hard to distinguish weather from climate and I talked about that so in fact in certain cases things are actually measurably changing on a on a time scale that is not the scale of our grandchildren children or grandchildren and so why isn't it called weather change instead of climate change? well it, no because it isn't weather change okay. weather is you know the weather tomorrow you know it, and this is a real problem when when a senator from Oklahoma brings in a snowball from Washington <laughs> saying today was a really cold day in Washington therefore the climate isn't changing right weather varies by a great amount on any location today you know we're doing this interview in Portland in Oregon and I can tell you the weather changes a lot here it happily does. it's a sunny day but but uh, what, do, what do you say to those who say everything you say makes complete sense, but now is it humans' fault? That's well, where they diverge. Well, uh, again, and, and the whole point is to try and look at that. And that was the question that was asked early on when people were measuring carbon dioxide. And it, there's an old saying, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. Right. Yeah. And so the point is we can measure. We can measure how much carbon dioxide humans are putting in the atmosphere by their by human industrial activity. You can. Okay. Yeah, we can measure it. Okay. We then determine how much there is, and then we look and we see, oh, well, the amount by which carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is increasing in a in a way that's exactly explicable to. to uh, is that uh, just it, humans or all animal? Uh, no, life no, no, human industrial activity. Just, oh, I see, I see. Yeah, and and we can see that the amount is changing is completely consistent. Now, you could say maybe there's a vast conspiracy, right. and then, but you can also say, well, but is that changing the climate? And you could say, well, let's make some basic, simple predictions. If you increase carbon dioxide by this amount, what it will do for global, say, uh, temperatures. Well, what do you know? The global temperatures has changed by one degree C, which is more or less exactly what you'd predict for that, for that increase in carbon dioxide. Right. So you can say, well, every prediction is bang on with the observations. And the observations are consistent with what we're arguing. And maybe there's some vast conspiracy that of, of effects that somehow everything we predict is wrong, but something else is producing exactly what we predict. And you could say, well, you know, that's always possible in science. Maybe gravity, maybe gravity doesn't, you know, go as one over R squared. Maybe they're little, little pink elephants that are sneaking in when I drop a ball and pushing it down. I mean, I can make all that. But, but the, the simplest argument is that the simple predictions work and are measured to be consistent with the with the observations. And in the case of climate change, everything is consistent with human human industrial activity. And there's no, and this is the key point, there's no alternative explanation. What about the climate on Mars? Why does it change so often? Especially Mars is just coming out of a of an ice age. Oh, how is we're, we we were too okay? Um, but that happens on glacial. That happens on. Geo geological time frames on the time frame of 30 years nothing can explain the or let's say 60 years since ralph keeling first started to measure the okay. increased climate on that time of time scale nothing can explain the, the effects that are observed except for the fact that the that 
that we're dumping carbon dioxide in, it's producing that effect. You, the Earth has gone through many climate changes, and we can measure them. And exactly. and, and people say, well, you know, there you, you know, go. the Earth. But <laughs> but once again, in in the first case, one can one can describe the astrophysical and geological um, ra reasons or connections, correlations between long scale, long term climate change and right. glacial periods. Um, uh, and 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 what we see in the Earth, those are generally explicable, but they're not. They they, the sun isn't changing in its in its emissivity and its luminosity on a time scale of 60, 60 years in a way. I mean, the scale, the sun is changing, and the Earth is. The, there's no it's doubt more that the, a longer gradual kind of. Oh arc. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The sun in in two two billion years, the the sun right. will be fifteen percent brighter, and then by the way, there will be a global runaway greenhouse effect where the surface of the earth will be like venus but I don't, unless we do something about it unless okay? we go to mars or unless we do something you know we're an intelligent species but sometimes do and, like what put like a huge softbox there's over lots the of things we might imagine we might move the position of the earth yeah we can With there's what? lots of possible but 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 that i think that two billion year change is not something you know we need to worry about right, right. away right we have two billion years if we're around and it's and that's not you know so the point is that um you're well, right that the, the weather changes, and that's the key thing to distinguish right. between weather and climate. Okay, and um, and you know because people that's another thing I think that's really important to understand that when it comes to people's skepticism, people say, "Well, look, I can predict the weather here in Portland tomorrow, and I can make a prediction a week from now, but my prediction is not likely to be right." Well, right. if I can't predict the weather in Portland a week from now, how can, how can I predict climate? That's a good and point. And it's a very it's a very different thing you're not talking about local variability in uh, this week you're talking about a, a macro, global effect yeah. but also you're talking about averaged over over many many individual variations which right. are the what well, you're averaging over many individual very that's why for example i might not be able to predict what you can do but if i take all of humanity i can make certain predictions because 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 what the law of large numbers where the the average of humanity will do something okay right. the average height of humans will change the average population will grow Gen so, generally speaking exceptions excluded essentially well yeah yeah absolutely but yeah. you know that's one of the reasons i do cosmology i often say is that the universe is far simpler to understand because right. there's lots of complexity here on earth right and one of the reasons i don't do climate change as a, as a scientist is so complicated compared to right. cosmology right. In, in that sense well it's not the reason the only reason i'm, I'm interested in sort of fundamental questions of right. uh, how the universe works but um, uh, but the universe is relatively easy to understand, and because it's so simple in large scales, in spite of the in spite of the uh, all the local variability, right. and and climate, uh, because we're 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 averaging over local variations, and we're 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 looking at lo longer time scales, um, is in some sense easier to understand, um, because you're looking at global quantities like the emissivity emissivity of the Earth, the absorption of radiation global effects there, i mean as i say there's no it's not rocket science to say the earth has to radiate into space the same amount of radiation that comes in for the sun right. or it'll heat up i don't think anyone can deny that fact right. okay and if they do then they're denying basic physics <laughs> exactly. okay you know it, 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 if the out what goes out is the same as what comes in everything's going to remain the same right and if it changes things will change and so you, if you look at global questions such as as radiation by the Earth, and we can measure, by the way, the, again these aren't model dependent things. In my book, I have graphs showing satellites measuring the emissivity of the Earth in different bands, and right. you know you can see. So we can look at the radiation emitted by the Earth, and we can look at the radiation coming down in the Earth. And so these aren't 
This isn't. Do you, do you think people should be educated on this uh, from from elementary school? To, well, basic should look, it be like think, a required curriculum. Well, look, I think the required curriculum should be to understand how we get how we understand things and how we and what how to separate sense from nonsense. It used to be the school taught kids facts, okay? Right. But now there's efforts to say there's more facts in my iPhone than you, anything, <laughs> but there's more misfacts. What we have to teach people is how to question is the scientific method. Right. That's what we need to teach people to rely on empirical evidence, many different sources to question yourself, right. question others, test your hypotheses and that sort of thing. Now but but, but, but when I it comes like to basic <clears throat> things about climate change Absolutely. I mean, it's a great example of how to, to ask questions about the world and how to exactly. look at things, which is why I wrote this book. It's the kind of thing that anyone should at some, you know, I'm not asking everyone to be a climatologist and people say that, you know, well, I, well, I just recently wrote that I was very upset at the Supreme Court candidate who happened while we're talking is, is maybe confirmed and give, it'll, it'll date when we're talking about this. But <laughs> But and when she was asked about, about climate change, she read, she read about it, but she didn't have any strong views. And then when she was asked about in, in the context of, you know, whether she believes smoking cause, causes cancer, she said she didn't want to discuss the issue because it was politically controversial. Well, science isn't politically. Uh, science is science. Right. Uh, and, and, and so so arguing that I refuse to discuss reality because it might impact on politics right. is a problem. But, but anyone who considers themselves literate should at least have a basic understanding of the very issue that I just said, energy in equals energy out, certain basic concepts of science that are essential for, for everyday life. I think every, what I think is we need scientific literacy at the same way we, we need literacy in other things, history. You know, we expect people to know the Holocaust happened, okay, I mean basic aspects of history, or how to determine what happened in the Second World War. We, we, need, we expect people to know maybe who William Shakespeare was if, they're, <laughs> if they have some literacy. Right. And so having some basic understanding of energetics and science is important, but we've, 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 we've removed ourselves from that responsibility. We've, we've uh, hidden from that responsibility. Where, so we can, we, people can proudly claim their scientific illiteracy, and it's, it's a badge of honor, whereas right. would disqualify them if they said, well, you know, I, I think I've heard who Shakespeare was, but I have no strong views on, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, people would laugh at them, right. but, we, but we somehow decide that, that to be, to, that to understand any aspects of science, you have to be a scientist, right. but we don't say that about anything else. To understand any basic aspects why of economics, you, you have to be an economist. Why, why do you think that is? Why, why do you think people put such a high kind of bar? I, I think part of it is the scientific community themselves, right? It's very, if you, if you claim to have a secret, secret knowledge, right. it gives you power, right? right. And I think the, that kind of elitism, I think, is a good part of it. But part of it also, I think, is that just we've, we, well, partly science relates to math, okay. and people are afraid of mathematics. And we, again, don't convince people that most people can do basic mathematics. They're, they're, people are, if, if people say, gee whiz, I just don't, numbers don't do anything for me, we right. say, okay, fine. But again, once again, if, if people said, you know, English writing doesn't do anything for me, like, hey. it, we, they wouldn't get a job, <laughs> exactly. okay? And, and so I, I, I think it's just that it seemed cool for too long, I mean, we talk about the poor, poor science education in schools, and there has been, okay? But what worries me almost as much, having taught at Yale for many years, was seeing kids who 
who were clearly intelligent, right. but we gave them a free pass. They could proudly proclaim their scientific literacy and call that culture. Somehow that was saying- my point. I was gonna make that point actually. What do you think about universities now not being so picky about the people that go into school? Well, I mean, the, the thing is, when, you, when you're not as picky with people, then you have to kind of dumb down the curriculum so, so it could be learned by someone who might not be otherwise be able to learn something like well, that. Well, I think, look, I think, I think that I'm more optimistic. I think most people, that's why I write popular books and among right. other things. I think basic ideas anyone can access. So I'm not, I, I am concerned that, that universities, first of all, give, and, and when I, one of the reasons I, I was frustrated at Yale is they give the impression that students don't have to understand these science to be cultured. And moreover, in some sense, the less they understand or the less capable they are dealing with it, the more cultured they are. That right. somehow saying you're, oh, math doesn't work for me, is, is, is akin to saying, yes, I'm an artistic I'm person. I'm a more creative person, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's just I've not true. I've never understood that. Yeah, yeah no, no. And, uh, well, but, it, but it's, a, it's a myth. Right. My, a friend of mine, Alan Alda, who's a, an actor, once said, yeah. you know, he's done a lot to promote science. And we've done a bunch of events together. But I love what he once said. He said, he talked about science versus the arts, and he said, um, "Science requires creativity, and the arts require hard work, or something like that." Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. just to, you know, and and it's true. It's about, you know, but they're both very similar in in requiring what? creativity and hard work. But you know, when it comes to universities again, I think that um, I what is a problem right. more for me of a problem with universities is. I think for many people, and people don't want to talk about that usually. Yeah, well, because the, they, they want to make education accessible to everyone. Well, every education, <clears throat> education should be accessible to everyone, but that doesn't mean everyone should go to university. Exactly. And and having taught at universities for many years and had a daughter who, who went to college and a stepdaughter who's now in college, uh, it's clear to me that a lot of kids go to university without without knowing why they're there. That's there are a lot of countries, you know, I guess when, when I, I lived in Switzerland for a little while when I was uh, working at CERN and, and um, uh, which is a scientific establishment in Geneva. And um, what surprised me, and I've spent a lot of time in Zurich, is to learn that in Switzerland, they generally tend to steer kids so only 15% go to universities. They don't, it's not as if only 15% are allowed to. Right. But and the rest go to good vocational schools or good schools and that train them for other, that. There's and there's absolutely, absolutely nothing wrong with it. And I would, look, if people know why they want to go to university, then I'm, I'm in favor of it being open to everyone. Right. But universities are probably not the right place for a lot of kids. Right. A lot of kids, I think, and a lot of parents send their kids there just as sort of a rite of passage. Exactly. And I, I feel badly that kids go come out after four years knowing not knowing why they went in because they don't they don't get out of university what they should loan, get. With a huge loan, too. We, with a huge loan. But if you... If, if, if you do that, it's a waste of your parents' money and, and, and a waste of your time. Exactly. Because university is a great place to go and expose yourself to knowledge independent of its practicality and question your basic assumptions and learn about the, the wonderful, uh, 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 incredible legacy of intellectual gifts that have been given to us as human species. It's a wonderful place, and obviously I've, I've, obviously I've spent most of my life at universities. But... But you have to be ready to take that in, and you have to be willing to, to, to work hard to take it in. Right. And and you can, and I still think everyone should have a basic level of literacy, and that's what we should be teaching in our schools. But but a lot of people can have careers and, and successful careers without, without that. And, and what you really want to teach people, and this is true university or high school, what we really should be teaching is how to be a lifelong learner. Exactly. I, I know people who, have, who haven't gone to university who are more well-read, more scholarly, 
and more intelligent than people that I know that have gone to university. It took me a while to realize that because I, I was kind of a, you know, I'm, academics have been my whole mm -hmm. life and it was only be, partly because of my public persona that I began to meet people outside of university and right. realize and that... And you're like, wow, this, this, guy, this guy knows more than well, some other yeah, people. Yeah, this, this effete kind of uh, 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 pompous view I'd had that sort of, right. you know, the most intelligent people at universities was right. was wrong. And so what we, we need... And, and it's also been clear to me in my own experience. I learned more physics. I certainly learned more about the kind of physics I do now after getting my PhD than before my PhD. Really? Yeah. Wow. And I think that's, for any good scientist, that's true. We, I mean, for any good scholar, it's true. We got to keep learning. But for humans, we got to keep learning. Right. And what we, so our learning shouldn't stop in high school. Okay, our, what we need to teach people is how to teach themselves. Right. And that's what I'm talking about, especially in this world of fake news and social networking and, 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 and access to information and misinformation. If we don't teach kids how to continue to access information appropriately and digest it and question it, then we're lost. What do you say about people who think educating people about global warming or climate change is political in a way because then when they grow up, they get to vote on policies that are against... Well, it may, you know, look, they may or may not. The point is, arguing that we shouldn't educate people because they may come to conclusions upon being educated that disagree with our preconceived notions is the worst, is child abuse. It's one of the things I argue... Some people argue we shouldn't teach kids evolution or science because it stops them believing in God. Well, it doesn't always, but if it does, okay, you'd rather your kids not be prepared to, to, to be part of an economy in the 21st century, you'd rather not learn the basis of modern biology in a world where biotechnology may be a great part of what make, keeps our economy going. You'd rather them be ignorant and believe something then learn something and perhaps change their mind. Do you think that's child abuse? Do you think science and religion are compatible? Can two, can a person be religious? Well, and, and uh, you know absorb. Well, it's it, 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 the answer is yes in the sense that you know I'm an empiricist, so I know scientists are religious. So obviously right. that's possible. But in my opinion, the reason they are that way is that people are. And and by the way, this is secret. Scientists are people. Really? Uh, yeah. Let me write uh, that down. Yeah, yeah, write it down. News flash here. Breaking news. Yeah. Uh, people are very good at, at believing two mutually contradictory ideas at the same time because we're not purely rational human beings, right. as as was once said. Reason is a slave of passion. And so, what is clear to to me and most of my colleagues is that the the, the tenets of the world's major religions are certainly incompatible the with with what we know about the empirical world. Um, but people. But people can, can if, as long as they don't let their religion influence their religious beliefs, have an impact on, on what they're doing in the laboratory, then it's perfectly fine. But, but I mean, what, what but I mean, look, look, there we don't. There are no miracles in the real in the, in the scientific world. There's nothing. There's no evidence of anything that 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 uh, violates known laws of science. If there are, then we're excited about it and we try and learn about it. Right. And so most of the world's religions are based on miracles. That's just one example, and it's certainly. Science is completely inconsistent with a fundamentalist view, which namely means taking those scriptures, whatever religion, yep. the Quran, the Bible, whatever, the New Testament, the Old Testament, taking them literally is clearly inconsistent with science. You know, the earth isn't 6,000 years old, and there are people who say, uh, you know, I read the Bible, and the Bible says the earth is 6,000 years old, and the Bible can't be wrong, therefore everything we know in science must be wrong, and that's the wrong attitude, because science is, you can either... 
Well, some people question carbon dating and how that's done. Well, they, because they're looking for reasons to hear the. If you have the answer before you ask the questions, that's the wrong way of going about. What you have to do is ask the questions and accept whatever the answer is based on your investigation. So religious fundamentalism is saying, "I know what's right before I know anything." Right. I know that this this book must be right, and therefore everything else. Um, has to has to be consistent. Instead of asking yourself the question, let me look at nature and is it consistent? And if it isn't, then maybe that, I got to reinvent. In fact, even that's a good uh, point. You said let, let's look at nature and see if it, the scientific method is using our, our senses, right? Yeah. Or, do you think there's phenomenon out there that it exists outside of our, our, our senses? Well, that is measurable through science, but still could be real or true. Uh, well, the, that's the whole point of science. We've created instruments that allow us to see things that are beyond our senses. We have infrared detectors, microwave detectors, right. neutrino detectors, gravitational wave detectors. Right. We've expanded what we can what we can detect. And, and that's revealed in an invisible universe, and that's part of what I try and say. Right. The real universe is so amazing, you don't need the nonsense. Right. The climate change is amazing. Some of the aspects of it are fascinating. I mean, the way the Earth works and the, right. way it, the way it responds to things, the way the oceans work, it was fascinating for me to learn about. Okay? And, well, wh and why is it the Catholic Church spent so much money on investing in astronomy? And one of the the most important astronomers actually came from the uh, Catholic Church. Well, uh, if he religion was, was opposed well, uh, to, he was excommunicated. Though yeah. I mean, I mean, they learned their lesson with Galileo. Right. I think there are a lot of reasons, and I'm not, and that I've read, and I'm not a historian of religion. That they, it was, it's sometimes it's important. Some people would argue it was important for the Catholic Church to know what the real world worked, worked right. how it right. worked, so that they'd so be prepared. They, to, to deal I with understand. those people who would somehow argue that that right. uh, disproved the existence of God. Right. But let me, but, you know, when it comes to this religion and science thing, go back to St. Augustine, who's no scientist. Right. But what he once said was, if, I mean, and I'll paraphrase it, okay? Actually, Mo Moses Maimonides, let me pick another Maimonides, person. Maimonides, the yeah, Rambam. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and said, once said, look, the scriptures are absolutely true, he said. But if your interpretation of the scriptures disagrees with the evidence of science, you better re-examine your interpretation of scriptures. And St. Augustine said that more or less the Bible isn't a scientific document. So bottom line is, if you think there's something profound in the Bible, that's okay. I don't. Let me make that clear. You don't but, think it's poetic at least? Oh, it, uh, certain parts of it are poetic, okay. certain parts are, and certain parts are boring. Right. You know, I mean, there's wonderful poetry in the Bible. It's, it's, it's a piece of literature. It's fascinating. Just like the Odyssey is a, is a fa and, and, and the Aeneid are a fascinating piece of literature, but I don't believe in multi-head beasts. Right. And from the, you know, uh, but I loved reading the Greek, the Greek myths. Okay, so, but what, what, if you think it's profound in some way, that's fine, but you can't require the, the world, the universe isn't the way it is, isn't the way it is because you want it to be that way. The universe is the way it is whether you like it or not. Right. And whether or not you'd like there to be climate change, that doesn't matter. Whether or not you'd like humans to have an impact on the planet, that doesn't matter. And whether or not you think humans can ameliorate the problem doesn't matter. The question is, can we? Can, can we address this problem in a way that, that at least makes us better prepared? As, as, in fact, as I end the book I, I, with a, with a quote from Louis Pasteur, yeah. which is, fortune favors the prepared mind. And that's the important thing. We have to be at least know what reality is if we want to respond as human beings. And, and my book is to say, here's the reality. Now let's have a discussion of policy. Right. Based on the reality, you can decide you want to do X, Y, or Z. And you can have rational debates about whether we need to 
you, you, you immediately get rid of uh, gas burning cars or whether we need to you know institute a, a policy about electric electrical engineer uh, generation electricity generation or how to use nuclear power versus wind power versus uh, you know right. solar all those things are important policy questions but if we don't know the reality we're just we're just you know do you think there should be a fundamental change in how society operates in terms of the people that lead us should they be scientists well, no, I don't think science should lead us. I really no? don't. I believe in a democracy, at least I have. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> but, but the point is, in a democracy, what we need are informed politicians and an informed public. Otherwise, a democracy doesn't work. So, the but purpose the way, of the science is to, is, to, is to advise, is to provide the data right. that people who are rational and intelligent but may not be scientists can then assess that Should there be a litmus, litmus test to see if someone's rational? Well, that would and be nice. That would remove most politicians. Well, that, no, but, but I'll tell you my experience. I was an advisor on to Obama during the campaign in 2008. I was one of... He chose... A, he, he made a group of, of 30 scientific people, a member of a community who were scientific advisors. But he had 30 committees... Of the best people that I, you know, when I looked around it, in, in, the, in at least in the United States, advising on economic policy and science policy. And so to me, what you want in a good leader is not someone who knows everything. And there are some, maybe Thomas Jefferson and, you know, right, Bill Clinton right. used to read voraciously too. But, right. but, but you want someone who recognizes, first of all, what they don't know. And secondly, how to choose really good people to, for advice. That, and then listen to good advice, okay, and assess, you know, within the context of reality. Politicians have to realize that the questions of interest, and scientists have to realize, the questions of interest to politicians are not the same as the questions of interest to scientists. Scientists may say, as a scientist, it's obvious we do X, but politicians have to weigh different constituencies and exactly. may say, yes, the scientific guidance is this, but based on the readiness of the public to do this or, or the economic priorities have here, I have to make that decision. So that's perfectly understandable that politicians, the, the, the priorities of politicians are different than the priorities of scientists. That's not a bad thing. That's, a, that's just reality. Right. Scientists have to recognize it and politicians have to recognize it. They shouldn't discount what scientists say because they, the, their, their advice may differ from what you want to do. They should realize that the scientists are telling you what's likely to happen. And if you want to do this, you have to decide what the consequences are. And so, uh, you know, I'm happy if more scientists go into politics. Um, you know, it's a shame that lots of lawyers or whatever, but, <laughs> but, but, but I don't care. I, I don't care where people come from. You know, I used to hire people uh, at universities. There was a while when I was considering being a, a higher level administrative official at universities and was invited right. to consider being a president and other things. But, but, but I've been on hiring committees for, for, and, and I'm often less interested in what the person's background is than what their capabilities are to adapt to, to, to new challenges. And that's really what's important for, for politicians and for society. So without an informed electorate and without informed legislators, then democracy fails. That's just it. And, and we're unfortunately in a situation where we're seeing the challenges to democracy where information is not getting out. You have politicians who overtly, and this has always been the case at one level or another, overtly try and distort reality for whatever their the personal reasons are. And, what, and that, that is possible in a democracy if you have a public who can see through that ultimately.
And the uh, public won't be able to see through that if they're not educated, though. It, well, what do you mean by educated? If they're not, if they haven't learned how to tell the difference between sense exactly. and nonsense. Yeah. And that, I would say, is a scientific method. That's why science is important. Science isn't important because it's, you know, intrinsically more valuable than literature. It's important because it gives us the tools to make predictions of the world that work and to find out and, and, and find out which predictions don't work. It gives us a tool to assess the difference between sense and nonsense. And that's my mission in some sense. But it's not just pejorative. It also is wonderful. The reason I, I, I write books about climate change or Star Trek or whatever is because science should be a bigger part of our culture. Science has produced some of the most amazing... Not? Why do you think it's not a bigger part of our culture? I think we've let this, we've let this two cultures myth of the, go on. We've let the, we've let the, the, the myth that somehow you can be yeah. a cultured, intelligent person and not know anything about science. And that's why I love to have events and do things with people who are, who are not traditional scientists. I loved... Like, you know, like I, a Christopher Hitchens, very smart. Yeah, well, Christopher Hitchens, I love doing... Yeah. I did a podcast with my, my friend Ricky Gervais, who's yeah. not traditionally known as a scientist, but we, we talked about science. Yeah. But or, or bring people like, like Brian May, who I did an event with, who's a guitarist for Queen, but also, mm -hmm. by the way, happens to have a PhD in astrophysics. Does and, he really? Yeah, yeah. He was, and, and so we could talk about that, or I love, or, or Alan Alda and I could talk about science, or Werner Herzog and I. Right. And so... So you uh, want to make it more, science to be more accessible. Well, more accessible and interest. I want to interest people. If people see that the people they're interested in are interested in science, maybe it'll be cooler. Right. And if the scientist is interested in science, it's not too su surprising. But if a cultural icon is interested in science, and you, and, and, and then 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 maybe it's all, that's why I love to interact and I love to bring together science and culture. And I think, in some sense, climate change is a cultural issue. It is. And. But but I want to bring to uh, and so the book isn't all it, it just like it's the physics Star Trek wasn't this won't work this won't work this won't work that wouldn't any, any fun this isn't all doom and gloom this is a fascinating way of understanding how the world works and it doesn't have to all be all bad it's fascinating to learn how the Earth works and how it responds I and how the people uh, people's impression are when they talk about climate change or global warming they have like a negative kind of connotation to it. They, well, kind of well, like, I mean, well, because it's does scary. That, does it, that mean I have to pay someone uh, for my carbon offset? And that's where they start to contemplate. Well, things, it, right? it's all been expressed in terms of doom and gloom and, and, and things you can't do and that people don't want to hear about that. Okay. And, and I think, and I've seen it to some extent in this political campaign, what we, what we need to do is point out, hey, there are opportunities and challenges uh, that we can, we can, for example, the United States has a, has had a, has had an awful power distribution system in our country we really need to fix it independent right. of anything else right. um the, to be able to get electricity from one part from where it's produced to where it's being used and to use it rationally well addressing climate change can allow us to develop an infrastructure that does that in the end we become better off independent of that right. our, our we are we have more reliable sources of energy 24 hours a day so in the hot days of summer in one place, we don't run out of we don't run out of power and have to turn. Kind of like load balancing. Yeah, and and so uh, I think you're right. Climate change, like it's like nuclear weapons, which is another area I've spent a lot of time on. Um, and I was chairman of the board of the Bolton Atomic Scientists for years and helped set the doomsday clock. Oh, People I, don't want to. When I was in elementary school, uh, they told me that in ten years there's going to be a nuclear site, like in every neighborhood. 
That's what I was told when I was a kid. Uh, and now there isn't anything like that. But it's this doom and gloom thing. Oh, oh yeah, well, exactly. It's pervasive in all these different... And people don't want to hear it. Right. So whenever I've written about nuclear weapons, which we need to deal with, and their reality, whether we're like, not, falls like a, you know, flat. <laughs> I, the least response, when I've written in the New York Times, as I used to, or, or any other place, those op-ed pieces would, would have the least response because people don't want to think about the fact that nuclear weapons can can destroy our civilization like that. Right. It doesn't mean they have to, but it, but it, but if we don't think about it, uh, then 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 we're really in peril. Right. And but climate change isn't like uh, isn't like nuclear weapons. It's a it's an existential threat at the same level, but but happily, it's something. Nuclear weapons. In order to deal with, we need sane politicians who are willing to act. That's Comes a really back to the same that's, thing. Yeah. that's that's a very yeah, but that's a lot a lot harder. Climate change is an area where the public can actually have an impact. The public can only have an impact on nuclear weapons if we if they protest on mass and say right. we want to treat. But the, but by our actions, what can we do moving, as individuals to to stop or slow it? Well, down? and that's the that's part of the problem. Everyone looks around and says, "How can I do anything? What can I do? Yeah. Why 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 should I do anything? What I do isn't going to be important." It's right. like uh, you know why people have large families? They don't right. realize that po you know that the population of the Earth is a is big part of the problem. Is in it, fact, yeah. sure, it's a big part of the problem. If we didn't have seven billion people, if we didn't have ten billion people in twenty fifty, that you know, the ten billion people is a lot bigger strain on the resource of the Earth than seven billion or three billion as they were when I was younger. Absolutely, po population is part yeah, of. Yeah, but then that brings up all these ideas about population control and this whole thing, and it goes back to another negative kind of. Well, thing. I know, but I, you know, on the other hand, you don't have to do that because I think generally, and this is one of the reasons I I wrote many years ago yeah. an article for Scientific American saying educate women, save the world, because. When uh, women are more educated, they have fewer children. Do they? I'm not, yeah, I'm talking about in third world countries, absolutely, because they realize what the, you know, the 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 how their the 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 well being of their family partly depends upon that, and they're also more capable and uh, and empowered to control their own reproductive cycles, and so. Uh, but but I think that you know how people individually can affect things is first of all, the first thing you do is learn. Enough to be responsible and and vote the right way. That's a really that's not a non-trivial thing. Becoming learning enough to be able to vote for politicians who produce policies that might produce rational so actions. Climate change is political at the end, right? Well, In a way. It, everything we do is political, right. but that doesn't mean science is political. Right. But science affects our political decisions, right. and that's okay. That's a good thing. Just like economics should affect in some level our political decisions, and. Art should affect our political decisions, at least decisions on what we make about how to how to support the arts and music in the schools. Right. But there's lots of little things you can do. One thing I would say, and this wasn't easy for me, um, but I, I I don't eat meat anymore. Really? Okay? Yeah, because meat is a huge, you know, because the amount of uh, of of resources we we take to not just from the point of view of how much wheat and corn could be used to feed people around the world that's used to feed cattle, but the actual carbon footprint is huge. And and so it's a simple thing to do. Uh, well, it's it's not that simple, but you can do it. <laughs> how and, long, how and, long you know, have you not eaten meat for? Just actually, by the way, just just it, this year since I in, in January wow. when I began to seriously think about this issue. I've been thinking about it for on and off. I've I've, I've done events with my friend Peter Singer, who's who's famous for writing about animal animal rights, and I, I've sort of eaten meat guiltily for years. My daughter's a vegetarian. Really. Um, 
Uh, but I did finally decided, let's just see if I can so do it. So a hamburger is really not part no, of No, no, no. And it's not as if I hate it, but I can do fine without it. Right. And, um, and so that's one kind of thing you can do. But the other thing I think that we, we can do, each of us can do, and it may seem, look, what, I just voted here because happily in Oregon we have voting by mail. We've had it that way ever since I've been here. It's no big deal. Often when I vote, I kind of feel helpless because I think, well, my vote means, you know, it's so little. Right. But it has, but those votes add up and have an impact. So even though my vote for president feels, you know, ineffectual because that doesn't see, it, eventually it, these things have an impact. It adds up. And I think that the, I really do think that, that if people are asking what can they do is they can inform themselves. And so, that helps make the, affect their own decisions and the decisions politically that they, that they, they act on. So don't eat meat. Well, that's one thing. Don't I mean, have you, kids. Uh, so, so, I mean, so, you know, not don't have kids. You just decide. You you have to. You look. These. I'm not proscribing things right. or prescribing suggestions. It. I'm saying you have to decide which where your priorities are. Right. Okay. If you do one thing, maybe you don't, maybe you give up in another. You have to decide. You have to know what the consequences of your actions are going to be. You want to. Have, you think having a big family is is important to you and and fine. Realize the consequences of that, and maybe you take other actions to it, it, to make up for it. If 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 you right. want to, if you feel responsible to balance those issues, but so you don't have to give up what you want to do. So I've you always, just have to realize that you, that you have to take responsibility for your actions. So I've always thought when when smart people or educated people don't have kids. How are we going to replace the Earth with smarter? Well, people? that's what the, you have. That's that's it's a conundrum. Yeah. Well, look, that's you know that's kind of a, a, a but that's a, a misunderstanding in some sense. I think happily of how uh, genetics really works. That somehow only the children of educated people are intelligent. Not always, I mean, but no, no. There's a sort of example. I mean, not that it matters, but neither of my parents finished high school. Okay, mm -hmm. and so I think the but wonderful doesn't mean, thing doesn't mean they weren't smart though. Yeah, but who? But who am I to decide who's intrinsically smarter? Once again, I told you that you can't always look to 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 people in universities to find the most creative, most intelligent people sure. around. Right. And so, the mixing of the great thing about the mix mixing of genes that comes from sexual reproduction is that is that um, is that you get you know uh, 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 diamonds in the rough, and I think I think that oh no, the people who are more educated aren't having enough kids. They've got to have more kids because the people who are less educated are having a lot of kids. But I do think what we really want to do, if we're more, I'm more concerned that people who may not be as educated are having more children because it it, it keeps them in poverty. That's that concerns me more than anything. Is that the not not point. being realizing that in some sense they're dooming themselves and to some extent their children's to a future that may not be as good. That concerns me much more, especially in the third world.